This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Recreational marijuana will be legal in four more states after last week's election in California, Nevada, Massachusetts, and Maine. How does that affect Colorado, which now isn't the anomaly it used to be? Attorney Brian Vicente is executive director of Sensible Colorado, a marijuana advocacy group, and one of the authors of Amendment 64, which legalized recreational cannabis here. And Brian, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Did you feel like a kid on Christmas morning as you watched the results from across the country? Well, it certainly was a positive thing for this issue. Um, It's sort of fascinating that the two big winners on uh, election night were Trump and marijuana. So I think that's certainly worthy of some analysis, but it speaks to how far this issue has come and how widely it's being supported by members of the American public. Yeah. How would you analyze it? You think that's a juxtaposition? Well, I think it's it's worth noting that, you know, eight states actually voted for progressive marijuana laws, uh, four for recreational and four for medical, including places like Florida that passed by 71 percent margins in support of medical marijuana. Florida, of course, also went for Trump. Arkansas went for Trump, also passed medical marijuana. So I think, you know, it's, it's worth a, a broader look at those Trump voters. I, it seems like a lot of them are interested in change and a lot of them are interested in changing marijuana laws as well. Would you have called this a more liberal issue in the past? I think certainly it's trended Democratic in the past um, uh, and, and could be viewed as a liberal issue. But really, it's becoming more of a bipartisan issue. And I think there's a lot of reasons for Republicans and Trump voters to get behind this. It's really a, a state's rights, get the government out of my bedroom type issue. The exception to the recreational votes was Arizona, where the measure failed. What do you think happened there? Well, it's interesting. It only failed by a couple points in Arizona. And they have had medical marijuana for a while, but I guess voters there um, either weren't ready to kind of flip the switch and do medical and recreational, or we're just trending more conservative this year. Critics talk about concerns like rising or increased use among teenagers because of legalization. How do you respond to someone in Massachusetts or Maine now who says, I don't want this in my state? Well, I certainly think they benefit from looking at at history in in Colorado. We've now had marijuana legal here for four years. And notably, we have not seen rising rates of teen use uh, or, uh, you know, people uh, getting behind the wheel and wrecking due to marijuana. So I think, you know, Colorado in some ways is viewed as the mentor to to the nation and some to some extent the world on how to regulate marijuana correctly. And places like Massachusetts can take notes from us. There hasn't been an increase in teen use. What do you base that on? Um, that is based on state statistics and federal statistics. Um, so they've, they've, they've basically been researching this issue and have done uh, uh, interviews and figured out that, that there's not been a rise in teen use. And I think that that speaks to the fact that we've moved away from the criminal market where drug dealers don't ask for ID and have moved marijuana sales into a regulated market where everything's done under camera and people have to ask for ID. Was this a national referendum on marijuana last Tuesday? I think it was. I mean, it's very notable that eight out of nine states voted favorably here, including California. I mean, there's 39 million people there. And now I think, you know, we have eight states with legal marijuana plus Washington, D.C. We have 29 states with medical marijuana. This is a real movement. And I think it's time for the federal government to wake up and change their policies to acknowledge these state laws. Won't banking laws have to change to make this truly a national market? I think that will have to happen. And, you know, that's one of the things I think coming out of this Tuesday election, we now have many, many new congresspeople that are coming from states that have legal or, or um, medical marijuana that will be going to D.C. And, and, and I believe they'll be pushing for changes in banking laws, tax laws to really make sure that those businesses and consumers in their states are protected. I think like many industries, the cannabis industry is asking what a Trump presidency means. 
What is your sense of this administration's view of cannabis? You know, it's a, it's a little tough to say. You can look back at Trump's comments over the past 20 years. I mean, sometimes he said, uh, I think all drugs should be legal. Sometimes he said, I support medical marijuana. And sometimes he said, you know, I'm not really happy with the way things are unrolling in, in Colorado. But the kind of common theme is he has said, you know, he believes this should be a state's rights issue. And that is sort of a tenet of the Republican Party. And, and I hope that he'll stand by that. Are there concerns you have about what other members of his uh, close team have said about marijuana? Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, uh, his advisors could play a pretty pretty big role. And he's looked at Rudy Giuliani. He's looked at Chris Christie. Neither of those uh, individuals have been friends of even medical marijuana. At the other side of the spectrum, he supported Peter Thiel uh, and put, I think brought him in as an advisor. And Peter Thiel is a large investor in marijuana. And of course, he's the founder of PayPal. So he's you know got a lot of money to throw around. I'll say that uh, the Republican U.S. Senator from Colorado, Cory Gardner, uh, as reported by The Post, said he expected Trump to keep his distance. Quote, my advice to the new administration is that states are intended to be laboratories of democracy and Colorado is deep in the heart of the laboratory. What is Colorado's place now in the pot world? As, As I said, it's not as peculiar as it used to be. That's right. Now, we're not really standing alone anymore. Uh, we've been joined by a number of other states that believe in moving away from marijuana prohibition and moving towards regulating this product. Again, I think we're sort of viewed as the mentor to the world. We've had a regulated market here for longer than any other state, any other country. And uh, as such, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can sort of uh, dole out to, play, to elected officials around the, around the country. And so to the fundamental question of whether Colorado loses out to some extent with the lack now of exclusivity in terms of the cannabis market, whether it benefits uh, or whether it's a, a mix of both. I think it, it's probably a mix. I mean, we certainly have a, a large jump on other state markets that are be entering this space, even though a bunch of states legalized marijuana. It's going to take 18 months or so for them to have markets. Um, but I think a lot of Colorado voters voted for marijuana uh, legalization, not just for economic reasons. They wanted to move away from the failed drug war. And as such, we see other states sort of copying what we've been doing and saying, you know, we're tired of using law enforcement resources to arrest adults for, for marijuana. Let's try something different. And it seems to have worked in Colorado. But are businesses worried that they will lose business because there is now opportunities and for competition in other states? Sure. I think we have heard from some business owners that feel like there could be a brain drain. Uh, some people leaving Colorado to go to California. There could be uh, more investment opportunities. Prior to this, Colorado was pretty much the investment opportunity. Now there's other states where people can start these businesses. But again, I, I feel like we have enough of a jump start and enough of best practices um, in our businesses here that it'll continue to be a robust part of our economy. We're talking about the state of legal recreational marijuana in this country after the Tuesday election with Brian Vicente, who's an attorney at Vicente Setterberg in Denver, also executive director of Sensible Colorado, and one of the authors of Amendment 64, which legalized recreational marijuana here. Do you see cannabis chains starting? That is, having businesses, multiple businesses, multiple locations in multiple states. I think that is probably part of the future, guess. I mean, it's interesting. Most of your marijuana shops are mom and pops right now, um, and we haven't seen a whole lot of um, 
you know, sort of moving across the state lines in terms of establishing brands. But I think that probably will happen over time. And I think, you know, so there's some Colorado business owners that have really put their neck out there, have, uh, you know, been selling marijuana in the legal market for several years and are looking at other markets to sort of capitalize on, on that opportunity. Can you cite an example? Um, what kinds of businesses are they? Sure. Often it's it's storefronts, you know, folks that have that want to be the next, you know, Starbucks of, of marijuana or what have you. But often it's products as well. Uh, you see different, um, you know, infused products, uh, beverages, et cetera, that have been popular here in Colorado. Uh, those folks are looking to bring those 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 uh, those beverages, uh, at least the intellectual property for those beverages to other markets as well and, and to continue to to. Uh, benefit from this. I think this has been largely anecdotal, but there is a sense that people have moved here because of legal recreational marijuana. Would you say that's true? I'd say that's absolutely true. I mean, it's interesting. After we legalized marijuana, you know, Colorado and Denver specifically became the number one place for recent college graduates to move. Perhaps that's due to our great sports teams, but, you know, I feel like in the mountains, but but I think marijuana has a, a piece to do to that. Some may say that that's a plus. Some may say that that's a drawback. But given that other states have now legalized recreational marijuana, would you expect there to be fewer people moving here, again, because of the lack of exclusivity there? I think that's certainly possible. Uh, again, it will take a good 18 months for these other states to have stores and jobs, et cetera. But I think a lot of a lot of college grads will continue to move here because it's a nice place to be. We also don't criminalize people for using marijuana. And there's a lot of jobs in the marijuana market here. You talk about it taking some time for these other states to roll out their regulatory uh, schemes. But I suspect then that the illegality of possession – would come sooner. Is that right? That's correct. So of the eight states that uh, legalized recreational marijuana last, on Election Day, um, you know, typically what we see is about a month before uh, criminal uh, restrictions are um, removed so adults can possess marijuana and not face criminal penalty. But then it typically takes anywhere from a year to 18 months for the storefront models to be set up. What would you tell regulators or citizens in these other states about the rollout Something you maybe you wish you'd have known before in Colorado. Sure. Well, I think that it's absolutely crucial to have a diverse number of stakeholders at the table as you're developing regulations. So even though voters in, in uh, Florida and California passed these forward-thinking laws, they now have to you know create the hundreds of pages of regulations to make them meaningful. Yeah, who should and, be at that table? Uh, elected officials, concerned parents, uh, marijuana businesses. If there aren't marijuana businesses, then you know prior illegal growers. It really Colorado did this right. We were able to get those people in the same room and talk about where there's common ground and how we can prevent diversion in the system, how we can address issues head on. Concerned parents, you say? No, absolutely. How, yeah. How did they uh, benefit the rollout of, of a legal schema here? Uh, well, essentially, the, our, our governor is very wise in that he got, you know, children's advocates, he got patient medical marijuana patient advocates, he got these folks in the same room. And when you talk to concerned parents and they say, well, this is this is actually what I'm concerned about, it's edibles or it's it's concentrates, that allows uh, you to sit down with, again, diverse stakeholders and talk about, you know, well, actually everyone in this room agrees that, that children should not have access to edibles. How do we prevent that from happening? Let's hear from the people that produce edibles. Let's hear from concerned parents about how they might fall into their hands and let's create good rules. Briefly, Brian, what do you think this market looks like in five years? Um, I think we will have probably another half dozen or more states that now have legal marijuana. I think Colorado will continue to be, uh, in many ways, the epicenter, but that may shift over time to California and these other uh, you know, 
giant economies. Giant economies in comparison. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Brian Vicente, attorney at Vicente Setterberg in Denver, also executive director of Sensible Colorado, a marijuana advocacy group. He was one of the authors of Amendment 64, which legalized recreational cannabis in the state. And we talked about how adding recreational marijuana in California and other states might affect Colorado. Coming up, how Bernie Sanders supporters in Colorado are feeling after the election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Last week's election results didn't change the balance of power at Colorado State House. Democrats maintained their majority in the House, and Republicans still control the state Senate. Members of both chambers gathered at the Capitol last Thursday to elect their new leaders. CPR's Vic Vela explains what that means for next year's legislative session. Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham of Canyon City says Coloradans sent a message when they voted to maintain the status quo at the Capitol. They want a reasonable, sensible, divided government. That's not going to go swing one way too hard and or the other way too hard. That may be true, but there's been split control at the Capitol for the last two years. And the two parties have not agreed on major issues, like transportation funding. So will this coming session that starts in January be any different? Governor John Hickenlooper prides himself on being an optimist. I take each one of these sessions as a blank slate, uh, and I try to remain as open as possible to each initiative, each policy idea. I think a lot of the historic animosity and, and division between the two parties in Colorado, you know, has been misplaced. Democrats picked up three seats in the House on election night. But a larger House majority won't matter. That's because any legislation they pass has to get through the Republican-controlled Senate. Chrysanta Duran of Denver was elected by fellow Democrats as the state's first Latina House Speaker on Thursday. She says she's looking forward to working with Senate Republicans. I think we need to put all options on the table and figure out how we address our fiscal issues facing the state of Colorado with 100,000 people moving to the state of Colorado in the last year. It's so crucial that we come up with solutions um, to transportation funding, to, for education, um, and for making sure that our state goes forward. Democrats had hoped to provide more funding for transportation in schools by reclassifying the hospital provider fee. These are fees hospitals pay that the state spends on expanding health coverage for the poor. The effort failed last year because most Republicans view it as an end run around the state constitution. Grantham says he'll allow a bill to be heard in committee next session, but that's about it. The fact of the matter is, uh, philosophically, We still think that there's a whole lot of money being spent here in Colorado and priorities can be changed. Grantham says he's hopeful the two sides can find compromise on reforms to construction defects laws, which many say have an impact on affordable housing in Colorado. No matter what gets passed next session, lawmakers will have to keep a tight budget in mind, given the state's looming $500 million deficit. And Democrats say spending gets even more complicated with Donald Trump and Republicans controlling Congress. Democratic Senator Dominic Moreno is a newly appointed member to the Joint Budget Committee, which writes the budget. He worries about the local ramifications of a Republican-controlled federal government. If they decide to completely overhaul Obamacare, uh, that has huge implications for our state budget and for our state exchange. You know, if they decide to cut Medicaid or they decide to cut other social service programs, that's going to really take a toll on our state budget. 
some Republicans hope those changes happen in Washington. Patrick Neville is the newly elected House Minority Leader. The conservative lawmaker says the national election results should embolden local Republicans to stand up for conservative principles, like reduced spending. We need to articulate our message and not try to tiptoe around what we believe in. We need to say it loudly, clearly, and boldly. Being loud and bold is tough to do when you're not in power. And that's going to be true of both Democrats and Republicans this coming legislative session, which begins in January. I'm Vic Vela, Colorado Public Radio News. Democrats are taking stock of their losses last week, particularly at the presidential level. Last week, we heard from former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb, a member of the Democratic Party's Unity Reform Commission. He stands by Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Well, I think she was the right candidate because she won the nomination. Uh, That's the way the process works. You can't complain about it if you lose the game and then say, well, someone else should have been playing. Other Democrats believe Bernie Sanders should have been playing. The Vermont senator won Colorado's caucuses, you'll recall. State Representative Joe Salazar was one of his biggest supporters here, while Skip Madsen of Denver was a delegate for Sanders at last summer's Democratic National Convention. He's also a member of the Democratic Rules Committee, and they join us to talk about the future of the party. Welcome to both of you. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I'll say that Hillary Clinton won Colorado's nine electoral votes last Tuesday, so she performed better here than in many other states. But... Joe, how much did you think about Bernie Sanders and what might have been on election night? Yeah, I thought I still think about it uh, even today. Um, you know, I have to take uh, issue with what uh, Mayor Webb said in terms of, you know, that's the candidate that uh, that we elected at DNC. Let's not forget that the DNC uh, did an awful lot to sabotage the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. And uh, and so I take great issue to, to how he's couching that. Um, but the thing of it is, is that um, here in the state of Colorado, um, what we need to do is we need to start forming better coalitions. And, and uh, uh, Mayor Webb's uh, comments and his statements uh, is not conducive for, for forming coalitions amongst the Democratic uh, Party. We need not only do we need uh, the establishment, but we also need the progressives, the Bernie folks. We all need to come together. When you say that the DNC had it out for Bernie Sanders, what do you point to as evidence of that? Uh, Wasserman Schultz and also uh, Donna Brazil. Um, you know, they, they had been working uh, in conjunction with uh, the media to, to do what they uh, what what they wanted to do to sabotage uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, th- that came to light that really uh, uh, disenfranchised a ton of people. But even through that disillusionment and disenfranchisement, people still came out and voted for her. And so you can't blame progressives for Hillary Clinton's loss. Um, what, what That loss, the buck stops at her campaign. Why did she pull out of Michigan? Why did she pull out of Wisconsin? Why was she going to Texas and Arizona? You know, that's, that's, those are the things that we really need to take a look at, not whether progressives failed in this uh, situation. You pointed to the former head of the DNC, but then you pointed to the media. Why, why blame the media on this? Well, it's not necessarily blaming the media. It's the fact that we had some bad players in the DNC trying to rig the system. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've been saying it all along. It was, it's, what I'm saying is not inflammatory. It's something that has been uh, talked about for, for a while. So, Skip Madsen, what about Mayor Webb's notion that the process worked the way it was supposed to? Well, let me first say that Mayor Webb is not a member of the URC. Let me make that clear. There are only two members of the URC right now. That is Jennifer O'Malley Dillon, who is the chair. She was appointed. That was part of the actual amendment, the Unity Reform Commission. And the other member that we have right now is former president of the Communication Workers of America, Larry Cohen. There are no other members of the URC yet. It has not been formed. Now, it may be that Wellington Webb is going to be a member of the URC. I mean, he's certainly been tapped to play a key role with it. Well, uh, but, but I was let, on Let's the go to his fundamental point there. Sure. That the process worked the way it was supposed to. No, and it didn't. It, 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 there's something of an armchair quarterback going on here. No, not at all. It's not an armchair quarterback as far as we are concerned. You might want to say that that's what he might be saying. I have to say that I have supported Mayor Webb in the far, in the past, in both times he ran for mayor. But he, as well as uh, Shirley Jackson Lee and a couple of others, when we were on the Rules Committee on Saturday before the convention actually started, they did nothing but try to stop every which way every one of the amendments that we had to reform the Democratic Party. Did that have to do in part with superdelegates? Absolutely. We had 58 amendments, and the vast majority of those amendments had to do with either cutting back the number of superdelegates or getting rid of them. Now, the URC actually incorporated part of one of my amendments, which was the formula for how we cut the number of superdelegates down to about 250, the way it was after the Hunt Commission, the first time we had superdelegates in 1984. So do you think four years from now, there will be fewer superdelegates? I sure as heck hope so, because that really is an undemocratic way of running the Democratic Party process. Um, There are over 700 of them now. When the Hunt Commission brought them in in 1982, the first year of 84, there were 250. I know. I worked for the Hart campaign in that year. So I just want to say that we have to change. We have to reform the party. And the establishment is going to fight us all the way. I want to play another clip from last week's interview with Mayor Wellington Webb. And the Clinton campaign reached out. Matter of fact, if you look at the Democratic platform, it's more of a Sanders platform than it is a Clinton platform. We took all the suggestions, primarily, that they made, more than 90% of them, and put them in the Democratic platform. The Democratic platform had the most liberal agenda it's ever had. And some people have suggested that the agenda was too liberal, and that's why we lost some of those other states. Representative Salazar, what do you think? I think that's garbage, and I'm hoping that he's listening. Um, You know, when we were at the DNC back in July... Uh, we met as a Colorado caucus, and I addressed the entire Colorado caucus, which was uh, – well, there were over 100 people in the room. And I talked to them about the fact that they weren't reaching out, that this was an exclusionary process. The reason why he says the system worked the way that it did is because they rigged the system as establishment uh, Democrats. And what I talked to them about – there's 100 people in this room who would, who would confirm this. I said to them, you need to reach out to these folks, these progressive folks. You need to bring them in because our party is dying from the inside out. You need to bring them in. You need to learn how to speak their language. But didn't we hear something different from uh, Senator Sanders himself? In other words, he was on <clears> – <throat> 
pardon me. He was on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton and acknowledged that she had absorbed many of his policies. So I feel like I'm hearing something different from Senator Sanders and from you. Yeah, well, no, I don't think you're hearing anything different from Senator Sanders or, or, or myself. What Senator Sanders has been saying is that we need to change our party. He's always said that, and he's even said it up until just recently, that we need to change our party. We need to bring in more individuals. We need to bring in the younger generation. And that is fundamentally one of Mayor Webb's biggest flaws, as he doesn't know how to reach out to the younger folks. What we need is we need to have better leaders in our party who can reach to a cross-section of individuals, both Hillary and Bernie, young and old. I'll say that Sanders wrote in the New York Times an op-ed piece quoting, in the coming days, I will also provide a series of reforms to reinvigorate the Democratic Party. I believe strongly that the party must break loose from its corporate establishment ties and once again become a grassroots party of working people, the elderly and the poor, end quote. And I'm saying the exact same thing that he's saying. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are doing something of an autopsy of the presidential election with two Bernie Sanders supporters looking at the future of the Democratic Party. Joe Salazar, state representative from Thornton, and Skip Madsen of Denver, a Sanders delegate at the Democratic National Convention, also a member of the DNC's Rules Committee. Uh, Let me go back to this idea that And I don't want to put words in your mouth. Skip Madsen, do you sit here today thinking that Bernie Sanders could have won against Donald Trump? Is that an assumption you make? It's not an assumption. It's based on econometrics. I've been looking at all the polling that's been doing, specifically places like Wisconsin, where she was supposed to win and she lost. And it was a very close loss in terms of the numbers in those states. But those electoral votes... They build up. And yes, those states that Trump won in the Rust Belt, Bernie won most of those. He won Wisconsin. He won Michigan, big. And he wasn't supposed to. They were shocked at that at the time. So what I'm trying to say is is that those same many, many people who voted for Trump because they want to change, maybe they don't like what he actually has to say, but they want to change nevertheless. Many of those people would have voted for Bernie. Yes. What do you think about that, Representative? I think it's exactly right. I think that when it comes down to it, her campaign stumbled. They made some tactical errors. This is nobody else's fault except their campaign. Although I would say the Clinton campaign might point to outside factors and did actually recently pointing to the FBI's action, for instance. Oh, no, totally. There are side factors that played into it. But When you pretty much bail on Wisconsin and Michigan, when you don't build up your blue wall in those areas that you're supposed to win and you go somewhere else, that's a tactical error. Skip Madsen, what other changes would you recommend for the Democratic Party? So you'd like to see less reliance on superdelegates. What else? Well, I'd like to get rid of the superdelegates completely, but that's really not probably going to happen. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to see a more open and inclusive process in the primaries and the caucuses, making it easy for people to affiliate as a Democrat. At this point in Colorado, you have to affiliate some months before you can actually vote in a caucus. Now, I know we have some changes coming on. Indeed, after constitutional amendments passed. 
107 and 108. Pardon me. They're not, they're not constitutional amendments. They're propositions. But they're yeah. propositions, yes. But my point is, is that I want to see it more uh, inclusive. I want to see a 50-state strategy. Um, I support Keith Ellison as the new DNC chair because I have talked to him extensively. We are on the same page. He also is very much in support of what we call small ball politics, which is working with people, Democrats, nonpartisans, all the way down to dog catcher. And the reason why is that's our AAA clubs in the Democratic Party. Representative Salazar, has the Democratic Party moved too far to the left? Absolutely not. I think we're moving in the direction that we're supposed to be moving. We realize that, uh, and, and the, the, it's bearing out, that uh, the conservative principles of, of, of Republicans, um, it's manifested itself in a hateful way. And so we're moving in the right direction, and we need to open up our party uh, to uh, – if, if you would have been at the rally with me yesterday, I spoke to 2,000 people at this rally that was brought together in just a matter of like 24, 48 hours. You've been involved in some of these protests, some of these rallies. Yes. I wouldn't call them protests. These have been rallies. These, this is, these are rallies of people loving each other and, and not tolerating this hate. And so uh, you know, there, there were people cross-section of Colorado and of America right there who won't participate in the Democratic Party because they see us as being too weak. Well, we need to have stronger leaders in order to bring them in. They need to, 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 to be invigorated about joining our party. Very quickly, did you both vote for Hillary Clinton? I, I promised on your show I said that I would, so yeah. I did. Yes, I did. I um, want to point out that Donald Trump's transition website is encouraging people to offer ideas to the incoming administration and to even apply for jobs and join them. Is that a way for someone who didn't support Trump to have a voice in Washington? Would you encourage your people to be a part of this administration, not just a voice of opposition? I, that's a re- wow, that is a really, really good question. And it's a tough one to answer. And, and, and the reason why it's tough is because this man has built his entire presidential campaign on misogynistic, racist, prejudicial, biased comments. And he says that he's going to have policies that, that mirror those comments. Although so, I'll say in an interview last night with 60 Minutes, when asked about acts of violence that have happened since his election, he turned to the camera and he said, stop this. Oh, come on. You know, look. I'm I'm a member of the Chicano community, right? I was I was born this way, right? And 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 the fact is is that when we hear someone make those comments that he's made over the past year on the campaign trail, you don't walk that back. You just don't say, "Oh, stop it" to people who are engaging in in, in racism or violence. You don't back that up. Let's go to that fundamental question. Would you encourage those who oppose Trump to add their voice to his administration? If that's what they feel like they need to do uh, in order to help uh, help the administration along, then sure, go ahead. Joe Salazar, state representative from Thornton and a backer of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. We also heard from Skip Matson of Denver. He was a Sanders delegate to the DNC and is a member of the uh, committee's rules committee. You can hear counterpoint from former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb at CPRnews.org. Coming up, a Colorado scientist consults on a TV show about a colony on Mars. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The first colony on Mars is the subject of a new miniseries premiering tonight on National Geographic Channel. The world's leading space agencies united as the International Mars Science Foundation and joined with private industry to accomplish one shared goal to build a home for humankind on Mars. 
People weren't just talking about the Red Planet. They were making plans to go there. And after years of training in the astronaut corps, I was chosen to command the first human mission to Mars. It is not pure fiction. Real-life scientists are working on a mission to the Red Planet, so the science exists. Connecting that real science to the miniseries was the job of Bobby Braun. He's a Mars mission veteran and the newly named Dean of Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Bobby, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. You've worked on many real Mars missions, the Pathfinder rover, Mars Odyssey, Mars Sample Return Vehicle, to name just a few. This series combines drama and documentary. So would you call it science or science fiction? Oh, it's definitely science, much more science than fiction. It's a docudrama, and we took uh, all the things that are going on today, and we used them to think forward into, into the year 2033 for how such a mission might play out. Interesting. In that way, can a television show actually help further the science in some way? I certainly hope so. Um, so I'm a representative of this community of people around the country that have been working for years to get ready to send humans to Mars. And I think the television, the television show is an accurate portrayal of how that might go. Did you have any misgivings about participating? Like, oh, God, are they going to come up with a lot of junk science? Or Yeah, when they first uh, called me, I was a little nervous. Um, I, I don't typically work on TV shows. I typically work on real missions. Yeah. But when I found out it was National Geographic and, and Ron Howard, you know, I'd seen Apollo 13 and, and other things like that. I, I knew they wanted to get it right. And uh, that was exactly the experience I had uh, throughout the entire production, working with whether it was the actors or the writers, uh, the producers, the director. They really did uh, try hard to portray everything as accurately as one could. The spaceship in the series is Daedalus, mm-hmm. and it's visually stunning. This is, I think it's named, <laughs> for, isn't that Icarus's father? I yeah. think so. Yeah. Better to, than to name it after Icarus, I suppose. Um, how realistic is the spaceship? Well, Daedalus is actually based on work that's going on today at places like NASA, uh, at universities like uh, CU Boulder or Georgia Tech, uh, where I used to be. Yeah, that's where you came um, from. Uh, places like SpaceX and Lockheed Martin, they all have concepts for what a vehicle uh, designed to carry humans to Mars might look like. And because I work in this field, I'm familiar with most of those concepts. And so I took a lot of those ideas and generalized them into a new design that is Daedalus. Explain what it looks like. Uh, It's a slender body aeroshell. So it's a a long kind of pointed kind of device. It's larger than a two-story house. It has to be quite large uh, to carry six astronauts all the way to Mars, plus their the crew, the uh, all the supplies and, and oxygen and such that they would need for such a trip. Is it possible that when there is a manned mission to Mars, that the spaceship that carries them, men and women, might look like Daedalus then? Uh, I think that there's a consensus in the field now that when we do send humans to Mars, that it will look something uh, like Daedalus. And in that hmm. way, I think the the series is a very accurate portrayal of what will happen in the future. Uh, As you mentioned, Ron Howard is involved in this. He's executive producer, and he knows drama, so it doesn't take long for something to go wrong. Uh, Just as the crew prepares to land on Mars, and that's already after a very long journey, there's a malfunction. What am I looking for? May hasn't found it. We're outside the window for direction. Reporting all systems nominal. 
I understand that that crisis was not the writer's first choice. What did they dream up that you found implausible? This speaks to the role that you have scientifically. Yeah, well, first of all, I love that sequence. There's so much interplay there between the crew. It's a very diverse crew, right, with all different kinds of skills. Uh, but what was original in, in the script that I was sent, uh-huh. the first script, there was going to be a solar flare, a large storm erupting on the sun that was going to send an intense dose of radiation in the direction of Mars at exactly the time that the crew was arriving at Mars. And I did some quick calculations, and the, the probability of that happening uh, at that exact moment is you know, infinitesimally small. Huh. And so we changed uh, the challenge that the crew had to deal with to something that has to do with the entry, descent, and landing sequence. Now, when we send robotic missions to Mars, by the way, there are, there's a whole sequence of things that can go wrong. Landing on Mars is, is quite challenging. And why is that? Uh, well, because you design your system here on the Earth, you get it, you, you test it as well as you can, and then you launch it. And once you launch it, it's on the way. There's no ability to send up a repairman or something if you have problems along the way. The, the system has to be autonomous enough and capable enough to self-correct when it has problems. In this case, uh, you have humans on board, and so the crew can be involved in developing the solution to the problem. But the problem that the crew is facing here is actually a real challenge that comes out of the fault tree analysis of robotic systems that we've already sent to Mars. The fault tree analysis. analysis. All the things that could go wrong? Is that what that means? A list, a a hierarchical list of all the things that might go wrong that we then deal with through testing to prove that they won't happen for our mission. So then you went to the writing crew and you said, the solar flare thing, not so much. And they they apparently took that advice. Yeah, they did. did. Let's pick up the conversation after a quick break. So this is the fascinating intersection of science fiction and science. Uh, Bobby Braun is our guest. He's a Mars mission veteran, newly named Dean of Engineering at CU Boulder, and a consultant on Mars, this new miniseries premiering tonight on National Geographic Channel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And a new miniseries debuts tonight on National Geographic Channel. It's called Mars. Ron Howard has a hand in it. And it is not pure science fiction. There's a lot of real-life science that's gone into it including uh, science contributed by Bobby Braun. He's a Mars mission veteran and newly named Dean of Engineering at CU Boulder. He had a lot of contact with the crew that put this show together. And you said that the the spaceship that takes the crew to Mars is the size of a two-story house. What does it have on board besides the people that makes life on Mars possible? Uh, so what you have to realize is when we send humans to Mars, it's going to be unlike anything we, that humans have ever done before. There's not a power plant right now sitting on Mars There's, for us. Nope. They have to take everything with them. So we have to take the oxygen with them for them to breathe, the food that they need to survive, the building materials that they need to construct a base camp. They either need to take those things with them or they need to take the machines and the equipment to live off the land when they land on Mars. 
Uh, to I use, think about The Martian, for instance, in which uh, the actor in that particular film had to grow his own food. Grow his own food, build his own bricks, uh, construct habitats, uh, make propellant for the return trip. All of those things are challenges, but they're challenges that we know how to do today. We just need to work on it and get it, get it everything perfected so that we can do this mission successfully in the future. And so give us some examples of what's on board. Uh, so what's on board, Daedalus itself, would be the power systems, the communication systems, so they can talk to people they know back here at home. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to remember the crew is leaving everything they know and everyone they love to go on this adventure to Mars. Right? Uh, the food, obviously. Um, and then when they get to Mars, they're going to land in the middle of a base camp that's been set up ahead of, ahead of time where robotic assets are placed around the base camp. And nominally, the crew is going to land right in the base camp and have access to those facilities. There'd be a laboratory set up for scientific equipment ahead of time. There'd be a fuel production facility. There'll be power, uh, both solar and nuclear power, available on the Mars surface. Interesting. So a lot of it has actually come before the crew. Yeah, the idea would be that a lot of these robotic missions would land first. Yeah. We'd test them out, make sure they're ready, and then when everything's functional, we'll send the crew. I misspoke when I said that there wouldn't be a power plant waiting for them on Mars. That is actually part of the plan. That that would be. Okay. Uh, Of course, the idea here is to grow the settlement over time. So it's not just about sending six people to Mars and returning them safely to the Earth. It's about getting this base camp ready for more and more people so that way out in the distant future, perhaps a hundred years from now, uh, maybe even a thousand, there could be hundreds, if not thousands of people living, working, and playing on Mars. One of the real-life visionaries behind the effort to send humans to Mars is Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of SpaceX. Musk talks in the first episode of this new National Geographic series about the importance of rockets that can be reused, which would bring down the cost per launch dramatically. And as you say, there would be numerous launches. And that makes repeated supply missions more affordable. I just don't think there's any way to have a self-sustaining Mars space without reusability. Getting the cost down is really fundamental. If wooden sailing ships in the old days were not reusable, I don't think the United States would exist. T-minus 30 seconds. And if they nail this ability to land a rocket any way they want on Earth, then they can nail doing it on Mars. T-minus 15. So reusable, meaning that the rocket is not spent, it Mm -hmm. lands again. That's right. And uh, what you hear there is that there could be tests of rockets landing on Earth so that they could do so on Mars. Mm -hmm. How close is that? Yeah, well, there's two really important facets to that. Uh, first of all, reusing rockets on Earth allows us to lift more and more materials into space to construct ships like Daedalus that are very large and need a lot of propellant to go out into deep space. Second of all, when we return our rockets here on the Earth, we have to do so in a controlled manner. Uh, SpaceX is doing this today. They've actually attempted to return... Attempted. Attempted. Uh, to return the first stage of their launch vehicle 22 times. 
Uh, each time they do, when they're up very high in the Earth's atmosphere, they light their uh, retro rockets to slow down, and they do effectively a, a full flight test in Mars-relevant conditions of something called supersonic retropropulsion. In the first clip that you showed yeah. from the series, when the actors are counting down, they say SRP in three seconds, three, two, one. SRP is supersonic retropropulsion. So every time SpaceX returns a first stage to the ground here on Earth, what they're actually doing is practicing the techniques and the technologies, proving that they're capable of using those same systems on Mars. But there's a lot more work to do in this regard, isn't there? Oh, there is, of course. I mean, we're not ready to go today. Uh, So what's beautiful about this series is it takes the work that's going on today in 2016 and previously, and over, over, say, the last few years, and it takes that work and it, it shows it in a way that, that what's going on today will lead to this mission in 2033. What, what about water? Yeah, so uh, when the crew gets to the Mars surface, they obviously they need oxygen, they need water. Uh, there's plenty of water on Mars today. It's in the form of ice. And so eventually uh, the humans will have to, the crew will have to tap into those resources. There's also a system called a wavar machine that you'll see depicted in the series. The wavar machine uh, is an idea to take the very small amount of humidity in the atmosphere of Mars okay. and extract water from the atmosphere directly. Uh, WAVAR came from uh, actually a senior design project at the University of Washington in the 1990s. There were some students there that thought of this idea. They actually built a system. They tested it. They showed it would work here on the Earth. And I and some of the, uh, the writers picked up on that and wrote it right into the series. Do you want to live on Mars? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, I'm more of a, I'm an engineer, and I think my dream would be to build the systems and the technologies to enable others uh, to go to Mars. Uh, I love it here on the Earth, actually. Um, I do a lot of work on Mars, but Earth is still my favorite planet. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm not the kind that would uh, leave everyone I know and everyone I love behind to go on this journey. There are plenty of people that truly want to be pioneers. I want to make their visions of the future possible. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Bobby Braun is a professor of aerospace engineering at CU, recently hired away from Georgia Tech, and he'll take the reins as dean of engineering and applied sciences in January. Mars premieres on National Geographic Channel tonight. There will be another space show tonight. This one's not on your TV, but in your own backyard. The sky will be lit up by a supermoon. It's a full moon that's closer to the Earth than it's been in 69 years. Astronomer Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. And uh, happy supermoon. I'm not sure I've, I've ever said that before, but thanks for being with us. Glad to be here, Ryan. Why is the moon so close to us? So there's a pretty simple reason, and that's the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a perfect circle. It's a little bit oval or elliptical, and that means the moon can be up to about 7% closer or farther. And we have the good fortune that tonight the moon is at its closest, closest it's been in quite a few years, and it's full. So I think a lot more people notice the moon when it's full, And we're going to have an extra big, admittedly only by 7%, but the full moon is beautiful anyway. It's extra big tonight, and everybody should go out and look. Say more about how much closer 7% is. It's not going to be the size of a giant plane flying over your head, 
When it's 7% closer, it only looks 7% bigger in diameter. An interesting thing is the moon looks much bigger to almost anyone when it's near the horizon. You may have noticed this yourself. Listeners may have noticed when the moon is overhead, full moon looks nice. But when you catch it just rising or setting, somehow it looks bigger. I think that's because of the buildings or the mountains you can use as a reference point. Hmm. So if you want to see quite a beautiful show, I would recommend uh, going out at uh, moonrise. The moonrise is roughly uh, 5.15, be out there then. I like to use a pair of binoculars and line myself up where there's something cool in the foreground. I just love that it hasn't happened uh, that the Earth and Moon have been this close since 1948, and it won't be again until November of 2034. We astronomers know how to hype things a little bit, and even though it's going to be only a little bit bigger, you're absolutely right. It hasn't been this big for a very long time. And it's going to make quite a beautiful show. Astronomer Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.